Qantas gets joist, the economy, Dutton goes nuclear, and good news on batteries. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday for a very special Thursday edition. I am coming to you live from Briz Vegas on in the Sunshine State from the QCU building. That's the Queensland Council of Unions and our good friends and comrades here have allowed me the use of their space so that we could record this episode. Van is joining me from our home in central Victoria and I can see her cute little face. Of course, as always, my co-host is the best-selling author of QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults and the carer, not just of her mother, but our dog, Germanicus. <laughs> how are you, my love, and how are those two key parts of our family? Oh, those two are, are bonding out in the lounge room. You might hear them chat uh, at various points over the recording of the podcast. We are good. I did something fun today. What was that? I did uh, an interview with our friend Stephen Donnelly from Socially Democratic talking about our shared dark student politician past. Fantastic. Well, so that episode of Socially Democratic will be out soon. Uh, we have a, a great relationship with Donnelly and the Socially Democratic guys. We see ourselves as the policy output side of the uh, Labourist conversation, whereas they are definitely the machine. And <laughs> machining was discussed by all today. It was great fun. Yes, indeed. Stephen is the, uh, the machine, the campaign machine. Speaking of machines, but machines that perhaps are not working as well as they should, we have to talk about Qantas ban because uh, it is okay. a broken machine. Pleasure. I caught a Qantas flight the other day. I do that a lot. I'm one of the many, 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 many Australians that depend on Qantas to be able to run my life. Obviously, work takes me and you to different destinations all the time. Mix in the care of my mother, your and mine's desperate attempts to have a relationship and care for our dog together, and dependency on Qantas becomes quite serious. And of course, for work. Huh? And of course, for work for both. Yeah, of no, that was I. I led with that bit. Oh, sorry. Yep. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a big week for the two of us. And I brought my mother down to our home in Victoria the other day on a Qantas flight. And guess who else was there? Who was there? Who else was on the flight? Alan Joyce. Alan Joyce. was on the Qantas flight that I took. A Qantas flight, you know, we got so much help from all the Qantas staff. I love Qantas staff. I, my loyalty to Qantas staff is beyond question. They were so great with my mother and helping her with her walker and getting her onto the little van that they run you around in, the whole thing. But I'd just like to point out that the CEO of Qantas was on my Qantas flight with me and my mother. And what happened to that flight, Ben? It was still late, wasn't it? It was still late. It was still late. Literally, a man who we pay, oh, sorry, sorry. Oh, yeah, no, I'm a customer. Yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, taxpayers don't pay him. We just give him $2 billion worth of free money. The man who literally runs the corporation, who is giving out vouchers and prizes and apologies and we're so sorry and it's so hard, he was on the plane and the plane was still late. Look, in some ways, I almost, it almost makes me feel better about 
the man that he has to suffer through the thing that he's broken. Uh, and I say that because, Van, you know, I spoke to some workers this week who, you know, are, are involved with Qantas, uh, who have been engineers at Qantas for 20, 30 years, people who are in their 50s who've been so proud to work for Qantas that they've actually turned down more lucrative work to go and work elsewhere, such as their commitment to the national carrier, that they're just heartbroken that Alan Joyce is smashing Qantas. And, and, you know, these are people who started as apprentices, have seen apprentices come through and who are saying to me, there are no apprentices coming through or very few, and that's going to have a long-term impact. So part of me is like, I'm kind of glad Alan Joyce is seeing, is, is having some of the suffering that he's imposing on people. Oh, not too much suffering. I mean, he was in business class, Ben. Come oh, on. of course, of he course. wasn't in the cheap seats. I couldn't even have a pop at him because I was like jammed into a corner. And when well, I said, I mean, I mean a verbal comment, everybody, I'm not going around punching people. <laughs> no, no, of course. But, Van, I mean, this goes to the point, right? So today, uh, you know, one of the benefits of recording late is that we know now know that the Donata workers, who are workers who were outsourced uh, by Qantas to a company uh, to do uh, baggage handling and ground crew work, uh, have actually secured a collective agreement today, which we wouldn't have been able to tell people uh, yesterday. But this is you know, endemic of the problem, right, is that Alan Joyce has outsourced so many staff and and he's done that to try and make it harder for workers to unionise, either in engineering or ground crew uh, or in baggage handling or in cabin crew. And, of course, those workers are saying, well, this is not good enough. So even in these outsourced companies, you've got workers who are now starting to get really unionised and a shout-out to... uh, all the unions involved with Qantas, the Transport Workers Union, the TWU, the Australian Services Union, the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, the Australian Workers Union, the Flight Attendants Association of Australia. Uh, Professionals Australia. Professionals Australia, of course, as well, and United Workers like, Union. How many other people do you want to aggravate, Alan? <laughs> I mean, apart from all the unions, all the different divisions of Qantas and all your customers... You know what I learned the other day? I learned that uh, there have been reprimands given from from Qantas management to staff for, wait for it, over-servicing. Over-servicing. So Qantas staff who are trying to do their jobs, and in the case of workers who've been with Qantas for a long time, jobs that they were trained to do this way. So the Qantas brand absolutely used to be about superior safety, superior customer service. Those were the two things you always got with Qantas, which is why you always felt so confident flying and why you knew. And the uh, I've written articles in the past about my relationship with Qantas and the fact that staff members have done everything, such as counsel me through a breakup at the airport, give me a blanket, all of those things. But, yep, management policy is that tradition of customer service is over-servicing now. We're trying to help you with the problems that have been created by all of the short staffing, all of the under-resourcing, all of the outsourcing is now bad. Well, of course. And, you know, the reports just continue to come through. So not only are they victimising staff for over-servicing, which is just ridiculous, you know, they're saying, oh, our safety incidents are down as well. Well, it's because you've outsourced so many 
of the the safety issues. So reports came out this week about trucks hitting fuel lines, about firearms being left on baggage carousels for hours at a time. Situations where... Sorry, yeah, what? Yeah, yeah, firearms. You can see firearms, you didn't read the brief. Guns. <laughs> yeah. Literally guns. Guns left on baggage carousels, going around on a baggage carousel. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. This is what I'm talking about. You know, this is the reason, an airline nightmare. The reason why the unions are so active about Qantas. It's because they want to stop airport shootings, maybe? Well, well, safety in general, right? And this is why we always talk about joining your union. You go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W. You can join your union right now as you listen to this. You don't have to work for Qantas to be a union member, obviously. Although that would be a very good idea, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. Because those workers are outsourced, partly so those issues are outsourced, you know, and it and it just flows on it's into service levels it's into safety uh it's into whether or not the planes run on time i've seen people post pictures of bags left by the side of a runway people oh yeah everyone saw that one on twitter i think it was captioned just lol Qantas." yeah i saw people posting pictures of dirty planes now you know this is not the staff not doing their job. This is the staff not being allowed to do their jobs. This is yeah. not, you know, they're not being the staff available because not enough been, staff, not enough training. Yeah, it's shocking. It's absolutely shocking. Um, and frankly, you know, the reality of this is Alan Joyce has form. And I don't know how many of our listeners know this, Van, but Alan Joyce did all of these sorts of things at Ryanair, you know, and the reason why I talked to some people, you know, involved with the engineering of Qantas is because Ryanair has a terrible safety record and reputation. It's had uh, it's had fires, it's had planes. You can look this up. There's, you know, Ryanair planes landing randomly in places because navigational equipment was wrong. This is very basic, basic stuff. And that reputation you talked about before gets eroded over time by the time these incidents happen alan joyce has moved on and the same thing will happen with Qantas. probably alan joyce thought he'd be gone from Qantas by now chances are he'll be gone in the next five years and frankly so will many of those engineers in their 50s so will many of those trained and experienced pilots in their 40s and 50s and then what are we left with a national carrier that can't fly can't get in the air and if it gets in the air there's nobody to fly the plane it's bizarre unbelievable just absolutely unbelievable it's so bad and it's so frustrating because this country literally functions around Qantas like if you're not um, a person who spends a lot of time in airports because God has been kind to you like just a glance in the Qantas lounge and the amount of travel that's required for Australia to function as a nation. We are a big continent with cities that are stretched very far apart. And in order for basically any federal or national system to function relies on being able to get to the other cities relatively efficiently and quickly. You are in Brisbane. I'm in Victoria. My mother lives in New South Wales. We work. I'll be in Canberra next week. Then I'll be back in Sydney. I'm going to Adelaide soon. Like all of this, these are complex logistics just in our family in terms of 
our productivity, all the organisations we work for, all the institutions. And, you know, you get the feeling Alan Joyce and his, like, board of nodding heads think that he's some kind of corporate genius. And it's like... You've literally got this country by the soft parts. Like, we have to fly to get to places. And look, the Melbourne-Sydney air route is one of the most heavily trafficked air routes in the world. And for a country with a population roughly the size of New York, um, that is a remarkable feat. And it, and it goes to your point, Van. We, we have to travel. We travel for work. We travel culturally. We travel for holidays. We travel for family reasons. Uh, and you're right. The board has to bear responsibility for this. It is outrageous that there are board members who – in the in the crisis, and you can look this up. This is this is publicly accessible information. You, if you Google uh, Qantas's share price and you Google inside trades, there are there have been trades made by Qantas board members during the point at which the pandemic had crushed the price, and i.e. they were buying up shares and then selling the shares when they were getting bailouts from the Morrison government. Alan Joyce does this, board members do this. These nodding heads have absolutely got to bear responsibility for this. Because- oh, it's just sickening. It just, it absolutely sickens me. It sh- like, Qantas should never have been privatised. I think that everyone who was involved in that decision, and it was a Labor government at the time, is probably the reason why you have Labor leaders like Chris Minns running on a never privatise anything ever again platform <laughs> in New South Wales. They were talked into it by a bunch of neoliberals and treasury back in the day oh yeah well this is how we run economies and this is how we capital raise oh yeah you know we don't want any market obstructions it was all as we have learned a lie and it like literally any pretext by which the Australian government can reclaim ownership of Qantas should be seized because this is just absolutely outrageous in fact I go far as to say there should be a standards regime about training, about reskilling, about consistency of service in anything that could be considered a, an industry of national importance. And if those companies are not willing to meet those standards, th- there should be just an automatic nationalisation process. What's well, interesting you say that, Van, because I've actually been in uh, some meetings this week and, and almost as an aside, somebody mentioned that there are unions who are pushing for national standards in uh, industries where there is monopolies like uh, or in critical infrastructure industries like airlines, ports, energy supply, those sorts of things, uh, and and that private providers should have to meet those minimum standards. And one of the things they've talked about is training and service levels. Uh, just it was, it was an offhand comment that somebody made. And so it's interesting that you, you mentioned that because I think it's absolutely on some people's agendas that we want labor to use government to improve our society and if there's a lack of willingness to to renationalize and appreciate renationalization can be uh, difficult expensive 
you know, not necessarily. Not beyond the realm of possibility. And the reality yeah. is that renationalisation happens in this country all the time. We've seen it particularly in the health sector where state governments have renationalised hospitals that were sold and various health services. Like again and again, the logic of critical infrastructure and universal provision absolutely drives the case for renationalisation or national industries to begin with. You cannot trust capitalists with universal provision. That's not how capitalism works. Do you know what capitalism is really good at? Barbie dolls, because not everybody wants one and not everybody needs one. And they can find the people who want them and sell them to them. That's what capitalism is very good at doing. Public transport, no. You know, electricity, no. Like absolutely anything to do with the environment, no, no, absolutely no, not once, ever. They have to be regulated. And, you know, like I just don't buy this logic that, oh, yeah, gov- government regulation stops industry or, oh, you know, government regulation, oh, what an absolute downer for the market. That's going to cause capital flight or whatever. Do people, I mean, just one more time, let's mention our friends in Germany and Scandinavia and yeah. some brands maybe like BMW or Mercedes-Benz well, or Simmons or Fire or... Hundreds and hundreds of successful corporations in highly regulated economies. Well, let's talk about oil. Let's talk about oil because let's talk about Norway. In Norway, Norway has a state-owned oil company. It also allows private oil companies to exist. They have to pay a substantial rate of tax. A rate of tax which if you if you even suggested that a company in Australia would have to pay a 70% tax, they would simply refuse to operate. Do private oil companies operate in Norway? Of course they do. Of course they do because they still make money. This idea that capital will leave the country, uh, I'm sorry, but our iron ore deposits are buried here. You know, our natural resources are part of our natural environment. Our skills are here. People are here. We have our own markets to serve. There are there are people who are willing to spend money here. And this is what we have to remember. Working people, thanks to their unions, who have good wages, are actually powerful as consumers as well as citizens. We shouldn't allow corporations to forget that as consumers we have power and we shouldn't allow governments to forget that as citizens we have power. We cannot stand, cannot stand this notion that creeps in sometimes that somehow or another citizens are consumers. And quite frankly, New South Wales, I hope Chris Minns actually is listening. I'm sure he's not, but I hope he is. No, Chris, listen to our show. (laughs) It's a good show. Chris, if you are listening, if you become Premier of New South Wales, I hope you will abolish the Ministry of Customer Service because, frankly, you should have a Ministry for Citizen Services or Minister for Citizens or Minister minister for Providing Services to Citizens or Taxpayers, if you really want to call people that. But for the love of God, the people of New South Wales are not the consumers of the New South Wales government. They are the electors of, the taxpayers of, the citizens of New South Wales. The polity. The polity. The polity. I'm not sure. I'm not sure everyone's going to know what that word means if we start to. to maybe we'll bring it back. We'll bring it back. The polity. Look, I want to move on because uh, we, we've got to keep it fairly short today. But the the RBA has put up interest rates uh, by another half a percent this week. There's been lots of talk about the economy. 
uh, obviously we're in the run-up now. Um, the, the Jobs and Skills Summit has been and gone. We're now in the run-up to the budget. Uh, there's still lots of talk about labour shortages and uh, full employment. I've heard Wayne Swan this week uh, talk about we may have full employment now in Australia for many years. And, isn't that and I just want thing? to do a shout out to our very close comrade, Emma Dawson, uh, who's the director of the think tank per capita, who has absolutely been banging the drum of full employment, returning proper full employment John Curtin style policy to this country for a really long time. Emma and I have our own Facebook group. It's just the two of us, fans of the Curtin 1945 white paper on full employment. I certainly recommend that you find a copy of that document online because as far as I'm concerned, in Australian terms, that document is equal to the Constitution of the United States or the Magna Carta in Britain as a document that lays out what the fundamental responsibility of this government, of the government of Australia should be, and that is to provide a quality, dignified standard of living through the provision of full employment and excellent infrastructure to every single Australian. And, you know, when we talk about full employment, it's important to... Con- understand that that doesn't mean that 100% of Australians are working full-time all the time. It, it is it is about saying that for every Australian who wants a job, there is a job. Um, that the, And at the moment, there are more jobs advertised than there are people uh, looking for work. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody is fully employed. There are still some people who are underemployed. Obviously, we've we heard that through the Jobs and Skills Summit. There's underutilization. That's the that's the kind of technical term, particularly um, of women, uh, particularly of Australians who have disabilities. And there's more we can do to facilitate their engagement in the labour market uh, and and give them more employment that they want. But we also have to take a beat and recognise that despite this full employment, despite the fact that productivity has gone up 2.1%, the highest in a decade, wages have been cut 3.5% in real terms. Despite the fact that capital has made no contribution to productivity growth, we have had record allocations of our national income, of our GDP, that's our gross domestic product, to profit over wages. So workers are more productive and getting pay cuts. Capital is less productive and taking record profits. The system is fundamentally broken. It has to be reformed. That's one of the things the Jobs and Skills Summit tried to wrestle with a bit last week. The budget will see more of that. And what we saw this week with over a thousand child care centres closing and early childhood educators walking off the job is, I think, a taste of things to come. If we can't fix these systems, we cannot have such critical roles in our economy, in our society, being paid 40 cents above minimum wage, 40 cents above the minimum wage, less Despite than $20. all of the training and accreditation required to be an early childhood educator because you are, in fact, entrusted with the health and safety and human lives of very small, vulnerable children. Like, 
early childhood educators train for years and go through exhaustive processes to hold down those jobs because we recognise that children are precious and vulnerable and the idea that they are paid so badly. Ben, do you think it's a coincidence that 97% of early childhood educators are, um, what's the word I'm looking for, women? No, I don't think it's a coincidence. I think it's an absolute, absolute disgrace and I think it's frankly true across our highly gender segregated economy because it's also true in disability uh, support. It's also true in healthcare. Uh, We know that women are paid less than men. But we're, oh, you know, we've got gender, we've got equal pay laws in this country and men and women are paid the same. And it's like, no, they're not actually. They're not. Systemically, structurally, societally and economically, they're not. And the long-term repercussions are enormous. Women retire into poverty. Women are far more likely to end up homeless in old age. I mean, this is just unacceptable Un- unacceptable yep, the fastest cohort and everybody should be able to recite this from memory now the fastest growing cohort of homeless people in australia are women in post-retirement age like there are special part i just want to do a shout out to macaulay house in melbourne which is an accommodation charity that is specifically providing accommodation to ho- homeless senior women like, let's just sit with that, that that even exists in our society, homeless senior women, women who've been in the workforce, who've, brought, who've cared for families, who've absolutely brought up communities, all of this, who've, who've participated in carer roles. We know one of the reasons why women retire with less money is that they have the care responsibility for children, that they have the care responsibility for older people as well. I am an example of this. I am caring for my mother. They have a, a more caring responsibility their partners, male partners, than their partners tend to have them. And they are the ones, because of the care and unpaid labour they provide in the economy, they are sacrificed on the capitalist altar and become homeless at the most vulnerable time of their lives. And it is unacceptable. It is unacceptable and outrageous. And it is, I think, so fundamental that workers particularly women workers, have the right to collectively bargain across multiple employers. And I say this because I've been a CEO of a Uniting Care organisation where we ran childcare. We ran childcare. Uh, And those workers were paid according to the agreements that we had with the unions. But fundamentally, fundamentally, to bargain collectively across employers, you've got to get the permission of the minister. Now, Tony Burke has talked about this in Parliament this week. He's got 22 employers across a health service. He's got 17 employers who run early childhood education centres who want to do collective bargaining together so that they can collectively negotiate with their workers. We know that the more workers who are involved in the collective bargaining process, the better the wage outcome, the more you're able to improve productivity, the more you're able to actually get the kind of outcomes that we say we want for our economy, that we say we want for our workplaces. So it is fundamental. Just in terms of getting to a point where women actually getting value 
getting the value that they generate for our economy, that they have to have the power. The structures have to change. Like I said, worker productivity is up, but wages have been cut. Capital productivity is down, but profits have gone up. That system is broken. That system has had its day. And now we need to see some real change. And frankly, the Dutton-led opposition is all over the place on this. It's only been 110 days of labour. Literally hilarious. So I found the most hysterical quote, um, the, quite crikey ran it, from the government. I just couldn't... From the opposition. From the opposition. Sorry. Sorry. Oh, God. <laughs> Talk about Stockholm Syndrome. But in, I, can't even, I can't even think of what it is. Where is that quote been? Meanwhile, this is from this is from Crikey. I love this so much, and this is about the the Liberals. Or as Jim Chalmers uh, decided, they were the leftovers, and people on Twitter are now calling the Liberals the leftovers, which I think is fairly accurate analysis of where they are. The leftovers, worst worst Not cover band of all time. Yeah, that that'd be you know that's like you, um, Kabulcha RSL open mic night in the back room. Like, you know, Dutton and the leftovers. Meanwhile, the opposition's early childhood education spokesperson, Angie Bell, used the fact that childcare workers are today on strike demanding better pay and conditions to complain that Labor hadn't yet fixed childcare, despite having been in power, and I quote, more than 100 days. Apparently unaware that her party had just been in power for nine years, accusing the Labor government of quote, not listening to workers, unquote, might just have been the icing on the cake with Bell declaring, wait for it, is everyone sitting down, a fair day's work for a fair day's pay to be an important Aussie value. This this from this from the leftovers who spent a decade eroding workers' ability to get a fair day's pay for a fair day's work. Um, I refer anybody to my Instagram feed where you can see Ben and I in our beautiful um, aquamarine clobber marching in solidarity with early childhood care, early early childhood educators. Five years ago, six oh, years the ago. Big steps rallies. Yeah, the I remember. Have a look. Have a look at hashtag Big Steps now, and you will literally see Ben and I on the picket lines with the workers at the marches, like supporting that movement. It is just incomprehensible. And now the party of Makaya Cash, the party of Christian Porter, the party of like relentless attacks on IR, the party of John Howard and work choices turns around and says a fair day's work for a fair day's pay is an important Aussie value. I noticed that Angie Bell wasn't at the demonstrations for early childhood educators, but do you know who I saw was there? Oh, Senator Sue Lyons from the Labor Party, the President of the Senate. So Labor people showing up for the workers, Liberal Party, it's all a bit late, really, isn't it? Yeah, and I noticed too that the Victorian Minister for Early Childhood Education put out a statement in support of the workers as well. <laughs> and, you know, this is this is fundamentally what it boils down to, right? Labor will be in government uh, trying to do things for workers, trying to reform the system, and the leftovers are just attacking working people. You know, Angie Bell's comments aside, Peter Dutton and Susan Lay have consistently and, and viscerally attacked working people and their unions since 
the day after the election. Every oh, opportunity in Parliament. Every day of their political lives. Peter Dutton, of course, a former member of the police union. And okay. this, this came out, didn't it? This was this yeah, yeah, I think so this is actually right. more of a scandal than people people have Yeah, so it's all right if Peter collectivizes in his own in, in his own interest and that he is part of a movement demanding, you know, that the collective of of law enforcement workers, you know, meet have you know, put their demands and their logs of claims before people. So it's all right for him to do that, but it's not all right for the rest of us. And as for Suzanne um, and her her union thug comment, I am not going to the job summit because I don't want to be in a room with union thugs. And I made the point on Twitter, it's like, well, you better not go to an airport full of union thugs. <laughs> I walk into a school, even a fancy private one, love, full of union thugs. Don't go to a hospital because this, I mean, pretty full of union thugs. Don't go to a sports arena or a law court or a public service building. Do not get any news from the Bureau of Meteorology. Do not engage with scientists or any universities, Susan. And absolutely do not go to a theatre because let me tell you, theatres and film sets and TV studios are absolutely saturated with union thugs. And I think, you know, our good friend Audacious did a fantastic graphic uh, depicting uh, the diversity of the Australian union movement uh, in response to the union thugs comment. Uh, because frankly, you know, we have to get beyond this. You know, Peter Dutton and Susan Lay don't want to get beyond it. That's fine. They can stay in their, you know, cold, congealing, leftover plate of no good nicks and hopelessness. The rest of us as a nation are trying to move forward, trying to fix some of these broken systems that have withered on the vine for the past decade and we will only do that we will only do that together the jobs and skills summit brought together people who have industrially not seen eye to eye in fact have had knives drawn at 10 paces for much of the last 10 beyond last 10 years you know i was having a conversation with a union leader this week who said look you know I actually had to sit next to Alan Joyce uh, during the Jobs and Skills Summit, you know, and it was it was a bit cold. Um, but I did suggest to him that maybe he could have a conversation with the leader of the Transport Workers Union, you know, and that's what we need in this country. We need dialogue. The reason why workers collectivise is so that they they can elect leaders and they can have a voice at the table where decisions are being made. Some people, like Peter Dutton and Susan Lay, don't like that idea. They don't like workers having a voice at the table. Some employers, like Alan Joyce, don't like the idea of workers having a voice at the table. But that's how we get better outcomes. That's how they get them in Norway. It's how they get them in Germany. And, in fact, there are parts of the United States where they do that and they get better outcomes. So hopefully we can move beyond, move beyond the old liberal coalition leftover approach and Susan Lay will just have to suck up the fact that she is frankly surrounded by union thugs in just about every setting she's in. Absolutely shocking. Like absolutely. talking, talking. It's just, it's just the raw classism, and we know this is one of my favourite bugbears. You know, it's just the all of you are just the unwashed. You're just union thugs. You're vulgar and degenerate because you are working class. Yeah. Like, you know, 
classism is the bigotry in Australia that dare not speak its name and it yet absolutely saturates you know, the political establishment in this country and quite honestly rather a lot of the cultural establishment in this country and Susan Lay's comment, her union thug's comment is dripping with it. Oh, absolutely. And let's be frank, you know, there is a absolute classism in their comments but also in their approach to policy. You know, Peter Dutton is trying to talk up nuclear power. He's trying to do that partly because he thinks it will appeal to uh, a working-class cost-of-living concern. He's doing that because he thinks he can drive a wedge uh, in the working class between people who work in heavy industry and people who don't. And quite frankly, I was really pleased to see Albo call him out on that this week because it is more of the old wedge politics. It is elitism masquerading, cosplaying as working class policy. There is no, no future for working class people in nuclear power. Absolutely none. Usually, typically a lot of, you know, threats to their safety however I mean the nuclear stuff I just want to put the nuclear stuff in context because often people say to me on the internet from anonymous accounts like Jason Bunch of Numbers often Jason Bunch of Numbers will say to me on Twitter oh well you know you want to stop emissions why don't you support nuclear power to which I reply nuclear power is not safe it is not safe and the not safety of nuclear power is not just a case of Chernobyl totally falling apart pretty definitive incident from my childhood actually guys making me a strong opponent of nuclear power that whole massive nuclear catastrophe in what is now ukraine context um there is also fukushima and the um, like the triple disaster and i I notice how advocates of nuclear power are like wow these are once in a hundred events all right that's two and certainly in a time Three Mile Island, you know, which really could have been a problem in the United States. But let's look at things like the problems that they're having with nuclear power in France at the moment. Because do people understand that the way that nuclear reactors work, that whole infrastructure works, is that massive amounts of water are needed for cooling. Right? That yeah. you have to cool um, the heat around the uh, around the facilities, and of course that goes through the facilities. It is, is pumped out into rivers and oceans and things, meaning that you always actually have to put your nuclear power close to a source of water. Australia, not exactly renowned for having a lot of water beyond the coast. Everyone, everybody gets that. But what's happening? in France at the moment is that the effects of climate change are so dire and they're having this unprecedented drought that the water is becoming so hot once it gets pumped through the nuclear power station that it is boiling rivers and killing everything in them. So they've had to shut down this huge number of um, nuclear operations because they can't afford to kill their rivers. The situation is so bad that they've literally had to rationalise allowing five rivers to be boiled because they can't really shut down what's going on. Then we have the situation 
of what's happening at the Zaporizhia nuclear power station, the largest nuclear power station in all of Europe, which happens to be in Ukraine. Ben, is there something happening in Ukraine at the moment? It's sort of newsworthy. What is it? I mean, Chernobyl, which you have visited, is still there. Do you want to tell everybody how much fun Chernobyl is? Yeah, it's literally still a desolate wasteland. Uh, There is a war in Ukraine. And, of course, we've seen footage of high explosive and phosphorus shells uh, exploding in and around nuclear facilities in Ukraine. We've seen, uh, uh, you know, fairly uh, overt threats to bomb those nuclear facilities from the Putin Russian regime as a, as a threat to the West. Because, of course, something like that goes up. It's not just the immediate surrounding area. It's not even just the same country. Uh, As the world experienced when Chernobyl happened, uh, the winds of the world will carry atomic fallout uh, many thousands of miles. And in fact, all across Europe, they suffered uh, from nuclear fallout as a result of Chernobyl to varying degrees. Uh, and, and it is incredibly unsafe and it's incredibly expensive. I mean, yeah. just putting my economics hat on again for a minute, this is the most expensive form of electricity you can imagine. And and let's, you know, it makes sense that it would be expensive. We are we are creating an atomic reaction trying to then contain that in a small space, then using that to usually drive steam uh, turbines, massive steam turbines at incredible speeds, trying to keep them cool so they don't burst into flame and thus generate and transport electricity across whole nations or continents. And, And then when the nuclear fuel is no longer able to create those reactions but is still contaminated, have to deal with a toxic material that will continue to be toxic for thousands of years. So, yeah, that's an expensive way to generate something that we can literally make from sunshine. Yeah, and this is the thing. In Australia, it makes literally no sense. Like, we don't... We don't have the border. And this is a country that's constantly beset by bushfires. Bushfires are our very special climate change blessing. That's one of what's that's what we get out of that bargain, frankly, is the country being on fire like it was a couple of years ago. And where do you what would you prefer that we use our limited resources of water on? Putting out the fire that threatens your home, your town, your community, your crops, livestock, or keeping a nuclear power station from melting down because i think it's a better investment to have water to put out fires i mean frankly given the particular geography of australia it's interesting because like the liberals have really doubled down on this they actually had an inquiry into nuclear power just ask questions sort of an exploratory committee kind of thing in 2019 because they want to lift the moratorium on nuclear power because australians do not like it like absolutely positively do not like it do not want it yeah and the question that was put um, that why is 
Adam Morton in The Guardian, who's the environment editor, was writing about this, was like, why do the Liberals keep talking about nuclear power, but they were in government for so long and didn't do anything about it? And the reality is it is ridiculously expensive. Uh, you have to put it somewhere near urban areas and water. Um, what Albo did this week was he called Dutton on this by saying, all right, you tell us the electorates you're going to put the nuclear power stations love. You tell us which Australian communities are going to agree to those. And, of course, Dutton had no answer because it would be hugely, yeah. hugely unpopular. But Adam Morton has said that nuclear power is something that conservatives talk about to actually kick the can further down the road so they don't have to do anything about oil and gas, really. That they use nuclear as like, oh, well, we could have nuclear power and get emissions down. And, of course, everybody kicks off and there is going to be a long inquiry process and we've got to do this and we've got to do that. And it's a way of making sure that the coal-fired power stations can keep operating and everybody can make a fortune in gas. Like, that's literally why they do this. But it's been interesting seeing Chris Bowen, who is in it absolutely for a good time and a long time, having the time of his life in the climate change portfolio, I think, as is obviously everyone because he's a policy nerd and he's got a lot to do. Um, He went, he cut sick on these proposals from the Liberals and made the point Nuclear is the most expensive form of energy, and he described it as economic illiteracy for the opposition to support nuclear power. Um, It's capital intensive. It takes the longest time to recoup investment. It's not benefited from economies of scale experienced in solar and wind. The CSIRO has made the point that renewables are cheaper for Australia. Yeah. Absolutely cheaper for Australia. There's no question. And that in terms of our geography, our landscape, they suit us. Yeah. And you know, there's a lot of wind out where we need, out where we are. A lot of wind power, a lot of wind, a lot of wind power, and it's great. Like they're sort of cottage power that enables small rural economies to be part of an energy industry sector, and it's been fantastic for where we live to have that. Solar, of course, if you can't have solar in Australia, like where can you have it? This is the ideal place. Yeah. And look, we're getting offshore wind as well. You know, we're now building an offshore wind industry here in Australia. It's, you know, they are economic illiterates. And we know this. We know this because of the way they've structured wages and profits in this country. Like they are economic illiterates. They are the leftovers. Hopefully they'll stay in opposition for a long, long time. And with people like Chris Bowen uh, and Anthony Albanese and uh, Bill Shorten and Tony Burke and Jim Chalmers and Catherine King and uh, Amanda Rishworth and so many. I feel I feel I feel like I do. There's so there's so many good performers in that cabinet now who are smart, who are on top of their brief, uh, and quite frankly uh, are going to uh, reshaping uh, the nation and, and helping bring us b- back from a pretty dark time. Well, uh, I mean, and this is the thing, like, there are opportunities for Australia in a new energy mix. There are opportunities for localised jobs and decentralisation. And I just want to make the point because Barnaby Joyce infamously said that wherever he goes in rural, in regional Australia, he hears people at the IGA apparently talk about small modular nuclear reactors. Small modular nuclear reactors, by the way, are the carbon capture systems of today. They are a conservative myth. They barely exist at this point in time. None of the governments that have been investing in them have been able to make them work. And they are just like can kicking, future tech, 
not the the future is seagrass, as you and I infamously heard Greg Hunt say. <laughs> climate conference. It's sci-fi. It's sci-fi. It's it's Absolutely like it's like sci-fi. a and it shouldn't be trusted. And the, uh, let me tell Barnaby Joyce something. At our IGA, you have more people talking about what an absolute nitwit Barnaby Joyce is than have ever mentioned nuclear power at the supermarket in their lives. Absolutely. Well, Van, short, sharp and sweet today. What's our good news? Because there are alternative sources of power out there and I think we've got some good news about Batteries. All right. So a lot of environmental involve a nuclear reactor at all. Yeah. Very fortunately, when we talk about the electric vehicle future, we are not talking about the nuclear-powered cars from Fallout Four because I think, as we all know, they are bad. And if you haven't played Fallout Four, what a wonderful argument against nuclear power and weapons of any kind it is. But obviously, a lot of environmentalists get very edgy about the amount of mining which is required. Uh, for the minerals that power smartphones, electric cars, and batteries. Batteries are part of the clean energy future, obviously, but people do freak out about the things that they're made of because you've got to dig them up, all right? Mm-hmm. Now, what's particularly interesting is a group of scientists think that they've found a solution to um, creating a, a zinc battery that's 99.7% in um, energy efficient even after a thousand cycles of 400 hours and it is made with an electro- electrolyte created from chitosan which is a derivative of chitin and guess what chitin is i don't know what is, what is chitin it's it, it's a it's a mineral that's found in the shells of crabs and lobsters well we we're gonna make be making batteries from lobster shells is like something out of Kurt Vonnegut. And uh, scientists have known for a long time there's really interesting stuff in chiting, but it might be able to stop the extent of rare earth mining, which is um, being considered and in, in, talked about in terms of the battery future. So it's amazing. It's just so exciting. And this is why science is good, everyone. We should just give science all of our money. <laughs> well, what I love about this is that uh, – Instead of uh, lobsters for the ruling class to eat, there'll be lobsters for the working class to power our homes and factories. I mean, that's just, you know, I think that's just a beautiful kind of image in my mind that we're going we're gonna to have lobster farms because lobster farms are going to power, power our homes and power our industry. And uh, it also gives us a really solid motivation, even if you are a capitalist scumbag, to uh, participate in marine preservation. Absolutely. The ecological um, management of of coastal systems and all the places where crabs and lobsters can be found. It turns out that the things that can get us into the more beautiful future are the things that we already have. And are, are part of the things that make our present so beautiful as well. Look, that is... All of the news that we're going to share for this very special week on Wednesday. Apart from one thing, which is our news. Oh, yes, our news. We've been to talk about. And those of you who are our cadre and extend the reach uh, contributors will know this already because if you give money to the show to help us advertise it and make production expenses, you get little extra tidbits from us. 
We are doing a Week on Wednesday live. Yes, we are doing a live show at no less than the Melbourne Fringe Festival and we're doing it on October 12th, which is, of course, a Wednesday and it will be a live recording of the week on Wednesday with you as our audience, should you buy a ticket and come along and us being there, it's going to be at our spiritual home of Trades Hall in the Common Rooms Bar and you can buy a ticket and we have staggered pricing to make it as accessible as possible and we would absolutely love to see you there. I am so excited about doing a live event for Melbourne Fringe. I'm even going to wear a special outfit. Well, it's going to be a great night out, that's for sure. It starts at quarter to six on October the 12th. Get your tickets online, Melbourne Fringe. Uh, just Google Melbourne Fringe or Google uh, Week on Wednesday, Melbourne Fringe. Those links on all of our social media. Check it out. As Van says, there is staggered pricing, so there's a price point for everybody. Uh we're really excited by this. This, you know, it's going to be an opportunity for you as our audience to ask us questions as well. Hopefully, we can make that tech work. Uh, yeah, really exciting at Trades Hall. Huge, huge night. And if you can't make it to Melbourne Trades Hall, we will be downloading the show because it'll be our episode of the week on Wednesday anyway. But if you are somewhere else like Adelaide or Perth or Maroochydore, anywhere, and you think, oh, I'd love to see the week on Wednesday live, it'd be great, encourage your friends in Melbourne to go to our show because if this goes well, we are going to take the show on the road and do more appearances everywhere. Absolutely, absolutely. Come and see us live and maybe we'll do more live stuff. Van, we have to, of course, acknowledge that the the show that we have is only possible because of the great support of people who do make that contribution. Our cadre supporters contribute $20 uh, 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 every month. Our Extend the Reach supporters contribute $10 every month. And, of course, our Buck a Week supporters contribute uh, a buck a week. Cadre supporters, give, get a shout out. Fan, have you got that list in front of you? I'm going to do it as quickly as possible. Okay. Karina Barley, at Jen C. Campbell, Leona Gibbons, someone, Kathy Birch, Greg Miller, Fiona Evergreen, Bees, Giota, at Jed Carney, Christine Cole, Justin Dando, Tamara James Bromwin, Punch Drunk Veteran, at Jenny Forster, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, Hannah Honda, Sam Herriot, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, no relation, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter, Glenn, Robbie Brush, Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Atley, Archer, Linda Cartwright, at Leanne Shingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Karen Will Robinson, Narissa Simon, at Katagal, Lauren and Ash, Matthew Hadley, Narungaman, Sam, uh, John, sorry, John Pigeon, Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, and then, sorry, the lists are a little bit screwy today. Then there are our Extend the Reach supporters Stuart Munn, at Vic Mbit, Adrian Valente, Maritza at Carriedale 68. Frank Nihuis, Erica Pizzuti, Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, Pauline Bate, Kathy Birchie, Kirsten Black, Melanie Dinning, Jody A, not on Twitter, Karen, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, Vicky Hanna, at Knot, Love Your Work, at Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graver, Someone, Ross Kenner, Kathy Burgess, Anna Uren, at Ange Fennell, 
sorry, Ange Fennell, Vita W, Tanya George, Nadita Hannum, Maura Louise, Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham, Oxley, Beck, Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Heinen, At Galvez, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Eliana, Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Keir Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, At The Real Neville, Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, At Not Sandy B, and Renee McGee. And I apologise if I was a bit weird on your names, even if I read them out every week. Because the page I've got is full of strange characters. <laughs> yes, and please do when you are uh, becoming a contributor. Remember that the name you put in is the name we will read out. So <laughs> that that is that is what we do. Uh, so please do fill in that name uh, field uh, the way you want it read out. And just before we go, Van, I want to give a shout out. You're going to be at the WIMDOI. This is the Women in Male Dominated Occupations and Industry Conference next week in Canberra. I, I think, can't wait. I think it's going to be a fantastic conference. I understand uh, uh, 200 or so uh, women are going to be at that conference and, and it's a really, I think, important part of breaking down the gender segregation in our workforce. But also I want to give a shout out to the rail workers in New South Wales who continue to stand strong in the face of overwhelming pressure from the Perite government and increasingly some quite vile and negative things from some, not all, some, a very small minority of commuters who are doing some fairly outrageously terrible things. Got to remember, people, that despite the propaganda that's being put out by Perite about these workers, they are standing up for the safety of commuters in New South Wales. Absolutely. Standing up to make sure those trains are safe, that they are operated safely, that they run safely, that they are filled and unloaded safely. And without them taking that stand, there would already have been significant incidents. So please, I appreciate you might be frustrated, but do not take that frustration out on the workers. They are doing what we would want them to do. Take your frustration out on your government and demand that that government fixes those trains and gives those workers a decent pay rise and doesn't demand that the workers trade off their pay rise to fix trains that were broken when the government bought them in the first place. Yep, solidarity to all union brothers and sisters and others who are taking action in New South Wales. We are always with you. Your cause is just and right. Absolutely. That's the week on Wednesday, this Thursday, the 8th of September 2022. Look, technology is sometimes our friend and sometimes it's not. Yeah, it was. It, sometimes it's our friend, sometimes it's our family. And unfortunately, yesterday, it was like a Christmas with family where everything went wrong. We will hopefully be able to bring you uh, an episode of The Weekend Wrap this Sunday. Uh, and until then... Love you, Vanny. I love you too. Come back from Brisbane. Bye. Bye.